0: Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting January 14th, 2009. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll talk with our space maven, George Musser, who was at the meeting of the American Astronomical Society last week in Long Beach, California. We'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news, but we'll start with Siam.com's Larry Greenmeyer, who was at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas last week. We spoke in his office. First, let's talk about. Did you see any gadgets that really blew you away?
1: I saw some interesting stuff, but not necessarily stuff that, that I would say blew me away. Um, you know, I mean, there were there were some things like uh, cigarettes that are smokeless cigarettes, where they you can actually smoke. You it's the reverse of a regular cigarette. You put the filter in with the nicotine, you light it up. It's a plastic stick, and you you suck the nicotine out, and it, it comes out as water vapor. So, in other words, it doesn't pollute the air. Just your lungs exactly exactly, so you keep your you keep your poor health habits to yourself. There was another exhibit where um they had a a computer keyboard underwater to show that they had developed some sort of way of sealing up keyboards. I don't think they expect you to do any underwater computing. I think it's more for people who spill things on their computer. You know, so (laughs) stuff like that. It's interesting stuff. Nothing that was, like, sort of mind-blowing, though. Okay.
0: But for our underwater cities of the future, which are coming any day now, those keyboards should come in handy. Yeah. Uh, There was nothing you saw that you thought, geez, I'm going to go out and buy one of those as soon as they become available or the prices come down enough.
1: Well, yeah, the second part. In this economy, I'm not thinking about running out and buying anything. Right. And I think, and I think the vendors know that because that was a huge message at the keynotes. Everyone, uh, Steve Ballmer from Microsoft, um, uh, Howard Stringer from Sony, everyone threw in uh, a reference to the economy. I think they knew that they were f- weren't going to be fooling anyone if they didn't say that. Uh, you know, we understand that that people are uh, are seeing some hard financial times. So the the
0: attendance at the show it's I mean usually this is a a big big show Lo-
1: thousands of people come to it and the attendance was noticeably down this year um well it was still a big show there were still a lot of people there but anecdotally people were saying that um instead of 150,000 um Actually got good numbers from the cab drivers because I think the uh, the dispatchers were 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 sending out cabs to the CES shows based upon need, and uh, when I was arriving there, the, the cab driver was talking about 130,000 people expected, and when I was leaving three days later, he was talking about uh, another cab driver was talking about 100,000 people they were expecting. So that's down um, I mean 100,000 people still a lot but um, but it's significantly down down yeah down. <laughs> I tell
0: you I, I trust the cabbies more than I trust the, uh, exactly. the meeting organizers on their figures I figure those are pretty reliable numbers so the the keynotes all mentioned the economy what about uh, we heard in the in the mainstream press that just sort of the atmosphere was different because for example Bill Gates for the first time in a long time wasn't there because he's stepping away from control of
1: Microsoft. Right. Well, yeah, and, and Steve Ballmer didn't have Slash, the guitarist, on the stage with him to play Guitar Hero. I mean, the key, the keynote speakers who were there, you know, they they tried to do a good job, tried to be entertaining. Um, Ballmer, uh, basically, you know, the Microsoft position is as this is Ballmer's coming out party at CES, and you know, he had an interesting, um, he had an interesting keynote, but he also didn't have the products to announce to really to really help him out. I mean, you talked about Windows 7. The interesting th- thing there is that it's coming out so soon after Vista. I mean, Microsoft's not waiting a few years, which is very telling about how Vista's doing that they're they're rushing to get Windows 7 out. It doesn't, I mean, as far as I can tell, it doesn't do a whole lot more than, than Vista, but it's supposedly going to be better and work better, I guess. Well, that
0: would be a big deal. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I <laughs> mean, if they
1: had done Vista correctly, it wouldn't be a big deal, but, yeah. um, so he had Windows 7, they had some more, um, in- integrative technologies so that you can, um, you can do everything from your email. Um, it was just more, um, more of what we have, but, available through Windows right. and Microsoft products. Do you think that's a function of
0: of the economy or is it a function of just saturation of technology to a certain extent? We all pretty much have everything we think we need right now. And so the you know all the ecological niches have been filled.
1: Well in Microsoft's case I think this is kind of damage control. I think they spent the last year or so fixing windows rather than looking at new things. I mean, I I guess the most exciting things they announced were two new Halo uh, titles for the Xbox. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, their priorities seemed to be writing what you know what had you know what had gone wrong with something they had made a huge investment in. So I think that's one of the reasons why you didn't see anything really exciting out of the um, the Windows and Explorer and the other uh, computer technologies Mm -hmm. because Microsoft had a different focus the last past year.
0: And the other big thing was.
1: Everything's green. Yes. Packaging, cars, um, computers. So j- just about everything uh, is that can be marketed now is being marketed as a green product. Are they
0: really green or, or is the big uh, effort being made in the marketing the, of them as green?
1: Well, it's probably both. I mean, they when they say that a computer uses less energy or when a, a TV uses less energy, it's probably true. But how much? Is yeah. it significant? Is it, you know, 5% less energy or 50% less energy? Closer, yeah. closer to the first. I mean, we're not talking about any, anything that's, um, you know, going to cut energy usage down that much. And people also need to learn how to use the new technologies, um, more efficiently. So. I don't think it's it's a big deal, but I mean that's that's how they're. It's just like car companies are are promoting their cars on miles per gallon now, right? Whereas you know it used to be how big they are, what size engines they had, right? Or or how many women you could attract by driving one, <laughs> right? So um is green in danger of just becoming uh, so ubiquitous that it loses its meaning? Yeah, it seems that way. I mean, um, I think halfway through this year we're going to be tired of hearing about what's green, but it's. It. I mean, it, I, I shouldn't make fun of it so much because it's actually a good thing. I mean, at least, at least they're trying. Mm-hmm. So, to some extent, it's it's becoming a bit of a joke, but to another extent, this is something that they need do, to do and that they're actually doing. Well, when you combine green with nano, boy, then yeah. you'll
0: have the cutting edge of all future technology.
1: Blockbuster products green and nano. <laughs> nano green. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see CES next year and the year after. I mean. It, Because that's when the 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 company. One of the big things that happens when things are down, the companies that invest in in research um, tend to do better when things get better. At least that's what they tell you, and that's what um, seemed to happen during the last downturn. You know, the when the dot coms all went down. You know, Google emerged out of that stronger than ever. So you know, it'll be interesting to see what what happens when this is all over. Check out Larry's coverage in the in-depth report
0: at our website titled CES 2009, the Consumer Electronics Show. When it comes to space stuff, George Musser is our resident expert, which is why we sent him to the American Astronomical Society meeting last week. We sat down for a cosmic conversation in the library at Scientific American. What were some of the big things that uh, you heard about this year that you thought were really interesting exciting?
2: One I was quite taken by was the question of black holes and galaxies, specifically which came first. Pretty much every galaxy seems to have a a supermassive, very, very large black hole right at its very center. And our Milky Way galaxy has one about 4 million times the mass of the sun. Other galaxies have even larger ones. And often these black holes are, are sucking in material and spewing out either a, kind of a spray of particles or um, a, a blaze of radiation. And the question has always been, did the galaxy come first and the black hole kind of take shape in its very center? Or did the black hole come first and kind of gather a galaxy around it? Or maybe there was some common origin of them both. Mm-hmm. And one piece of evidence for this has been that the black hole always seems to have a certain proportion of its galaxy's mass, about one 1,000th of its mass. So this has actually been a big discovery in astrophysics over the past decade or so that there's this kind of proportionality of masses that suggests a link mm-hmm. between galaxies and their and their black holes. There's a study that studied um that looked at galaxies and black holes in the very very early universe. And they did the same kind of measurements of the masses of the galaxy and of the black holes in the early universe and found a different proportion i think it was only about um a 30th the the black hole in about a 30th of the mass of its
0: galaxy so the black hole is is much larger relative to the mass of the galaxy in, in these early Precisely. galaxies and the way you look at an early galaxy is or an, or an older galaxy is you just take your telescopes and you look further away the further away you get the the further back in time you're looking
2: yeah basically exactly so it's a, it's a really interesting, um, correlation, a really interesting discovery because think about what it means. The galaxy, the black holes used to be proportionally bigger. Now black holes can't shrink. Mm-hmm. They keep sucking more material. Mm-hmm. So it must have been the galaxy that grew bigger such that the black hole then was a smaller proportion of its mass. Right. So it suggested the black hole came first and then the galaxy somehow gathered around it. Right. Now, um, the day after that announcement was made I actually was talking to some other astronomers who actually think maybe a statistical bias in the way the survey was done. It might call into question the, um, the finding. But as a general rule, this work trying to understand the relationships of galaxies and their black holes is really a central feature of astronomy. So there are a lot of talks about it. A central feature because you're trying to understand the evolution of the universe. Right. I mean, galaxies are really the building blocks of the universe. So pretty much everything that happens in the universe happens within a galaxy or to a galaxy or involving lots of galaxies. So to an astrophysicist, it's kind of the it's the Lego block of the universe. Now to us, within a galaxy, a galaxy consists of billions upon billions of stars, it's this massive thing all around us. But to us it also matters because the way the galaxy, our own galaxy formed, allowed our solar system to form and thereby us to form. And our position in the galaxy seems to allow us to, to survive. If our solar system were deep in the center, we might not survive. There might be too much radiation or, or stellar encounters and so forth. So the galactic environment
0: does pertain to that of the solar system. Just as the Earth seems to be in a really good spot relative to the sun, the whole solar system is in a really good spot relative to the massive black hole at the center of the galaxy. Exactly. It, it seems to reproduce itself on the microscopic and the macroscopic scale. So, uh, speaking of our galaxy, a proud day for the Milky Way. We are the winners.
2: We are the alpha galaxy of our local neighborhood. This is one of those disputes that have gone, has gone on in astronomy for decades even. I don't even know. The question is, of the two main galaxies in our neck of the woods, us, Milky Way, and Andromeda galaxy, M31 galaxy, which is bigger. And studies say we're bigger, then it goes to Andromeda, then the torch is passed back to us and goes back and forth. So the latest study suggests that the Milky Way is actually either the same or somewhat bigger in size than the Andromeda, the our partner galaxy.
0: Now this is a, a really interesting methodology to come to this conclusion because we're trying to measure something that we're in. So how did, how did these guys come to this conclusion?
2: Yeah, that was really the, the challenge of this, of this work. It's actually ironically easier to weigh the Andromeda galaxy than it is to weigh our own galaxy. As you say, we're embedded in it. We have to look out through it and kind of interpret its structure from the little tidbits that we can, we can glean. In this case, they looked at star forming regions that were scattered through the galaxy. And they actually tracked them as they moved across the sky. They had such precision in their radio telescope measurements that they actually saw them go inch 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 across the sky, and then they could also measure the Doppler effect to tell whether they're coming toward us or away from us. so by combining the two dimensional velocity across the sky with the one dimensional velocity t- away from us or or toward us, they put together a three dimensional velocity and thereby the total velocity of these of these clouds Now from the velocity. Of these these gas clouds, these star-forming regions, they can infer the mass just by using basic gravitational physics. And they could also, they knew the locations of them so they could kind of map out the, the, to some extent, the shape and, of course, the mass of our
0: galaxy. And their conclusion was, it it used to be thought that we were uh, rotating about the center of the galaxy at about a half a million miles an hour. And the updated figure based on their their data collection and analysis is it's actually more like 600,000 miles an hour than 500,000. And in order for us to maintain our position and not fly out of our position, the galaxy's mass has to be about 50% bigger than they thought it was.
2: That's exactly right. Now, of course, the same thing applies in our solar system. If you measure... The speed of, say, the Earth's orbit around the Sun, you and you can intuit what the mass of the Sun must be, such that the Earth doesn't fly off into the into the galaxy. Right, right. One thing I think that's cool about that that galaxy, this weighing of the Milky Way and of the Andromeda galaxy, kind of the imp- implication of it, beside the fact we we're we're, we're, the, we're the top dog here, the more scientific implication is that there might be more dark matter in our galaxy than in the Andromeda galaxy. And understanding that dark matter is really where it's at. You have to understand that because kind of everything depends on it. The fact that the stars are where they are depends on the unseen dark matter that they're embedded in. So knowing how much dark matter there is in our galaxy versus other galaxies is something that will help understand dark matter in, in the
0: universe. Which astronomers would dearly love to do because then maybe they could start explaining it to the rest of us in a way that we can wrap our little minds around.
2: Yeah, it's actually kind of cool. The emphasis in astronomy for decades, really up until maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago, was proving that dark matter exists. Just the sheer, the mere fact of its existence. And now it, we're kind of to the next, we're to the second gear. For those of us who still use manual transmissions, <laughs> but we can think of it in terms of a gear shift. We're to the next level here, and... What is the dark matter? How does it behave? What are some of the things that it does? Does it have an inner life, as opposed to its gravitational effect? Does it do things in, amongst it, within the, the world of dark matter, amongst the particles themselves? So I think we'll even see probably the discovery of a dark matter particle, either in a hadron collider in Switzerland or in a detector on Earth.
0: There's a a big thing coming up in February, unless the government decides to push it back, where we're going to have no more broadcast, uh, analog signals. All the signals are going to be digital. And as you point out in an, in an item that's going to be up on the web or will be by the time people hear this, there, one of the unfortunate, um, outcomes of that is we'll no longer be able to see snow on our, on our TV screens. And, you know, snow is annoying when you're trying to watch a, a program, but Snow's kind of fascinating for uh, for just checking out for a moment. I want you to tell everybody what that snow is if they've never really heard about, you know, why you get that kind of wacky uh, static on your television screen.
2: Yeah, this is one of those kind of what are we losing moments with the progress of technology. We gain stuff, we lose stuff. Now, one of the purposes, purposes of digital TV is to eliminate the snow, so we don't have to put up with that, that static that gets in the way. But a portion of the static is actually from the Big Bang, is actually the microwave background radiation. So I can't remember the, the detailed fraction of it, but it's, it comes from various sources, such as transmissions on Earth that are mangled or Transmissions from elsewhere in the galaxy, but some of it actually comes to us from 13.7 billion years ago. (laughs) That's traveled uninterrupted through space into our atmosphere, into your TV antenna. Mm -hmm. If we still have some people still have those, I do, and into their TV sets. And if you turn between channels on the old style TV sets, you can actually still see it. And on the new TV set, you can't even get between channels. You just go from one channel to the next.
0: The other interesting thing, though, is. There was some talk about a secondary source of this kind of electromagnetic radiation other than the remnant of the big bang. Right. Some some galactic source of it that, well, why don't you explain?
2: So they're calling it the cosmic radio background. So this is at even longer wavelengths, lower frequencies than the cosmic microwave background. So there, in astronomy, there's a lot of these background radiations. The, the microwave background I've talked about that comes really from the big bang, from the early universe that was filled with hot plasma. We're kind of seeing the glow of that, that heated era. There are the cosmic infrared background, the cosmic x-ray background, the cosmic visible light background that seem to come from stars and galaxies and black holes that are kind of too close to see, but we just kind of see their overall glow that they, they give off. And now there's this, this fifth background that they seem to have kind of pinned down called the cosmic radio background. Actually, it was first seen really back in the late 60s, and then it was kind of, no one really trusted it, and then it was kind of seen in more and more studies into the 80s and the 90s, but again, these measurements are hard to make, they evolve an analysis that's very error prone, and at the meeting last week, they kind of gave some observations that may be more definitive in in the favor, and showing that. That this radiation, this disp- uh, radio background really exists. It was a balloon born instrument that was flown above Texas back in, I guess, 2006 or 2007 that actually used a really innovative antenna at- design that was designed to minimize the noise. It was able to shield out a lot of that terrestrial noise, um, all the classic rock stations, and just saw the, the cosmic signal. And it again picked up this this mysterious cosmic radio background. And now the question is, A, is it real? They still have to confirm it. The the data that they took was only a few hours long, so they have to go back and take more data. But it's looking more and more like it really does exist. Where does it come from? Does it come from stars? Does it come from black holes? Does it come from dark matter? There's a whole lot of speculations now about where it comes from. But what's cool about this is now we've got our 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 hands wrapped around a new phenomenon that we have to kind of grapple and bring to the ground and figure out what exactly it is. And it's just, it's seldom in astronomy you get up just a genuinely new thing to look at. So people are really excited about this new background, this cosmic
0: radio background that they're seeing and what it could mean. How do we know that it's not another Big Bang remnant just at a different frequency?
2: There is a suggestion that it is a primordial signal and that it's associated as kind of a leftover um leftover photons, leftover radiation from the release of the microwave background. It might have given off a weaker cousin mm-hmm. in the in the radio background. But most people think it has the characteristics of something that's powered by stars or by black holes Mm -hmm. in particular the kind of radiation um that would produce it is produced by electrons that are spiraling around magnetic field lines Uh so it seems to be very particular to that kind of environment that would exist in a galaxy or around a star that would contain magnetic fields and electrons so it'd be harder to really get that from the very primordial universe although i they're not, they don't know what it is, so maybe there's a possibility it
0: could be primordial. So, by trying to get a grasp on what it is, that gives you additional information about general universal evolution, how, how the cosmos got to be where they are today, got to be what they are today?
2: Yeah, the way I, I think about these backgrounds myself, the microwave background is in a category of its own, mm-hmm. but the other three backgrounds that were known in the infrared, the x-rays, and invisible light, and perhaps this one, this new one, radio as well. And so they're kind of a reality check. They're kind of a, a, a check on the census that astronomers make of the universe. It's sort of like what the Census Bureau tried to do with that statistical check on the count, the head count. They wanted to have a sample of people in one area and see how accurate the census was in that area, and they correct the figures. Mm-hmm. These background radiations function in the same way because they represent kind of the accumulated light of all the stars, all the black holes, all the galaxies, you can then compare that accumulated light with the, your catalog of stars, galaxies, and black holes. Add up what's in your catalog. Does it give you the same as the background light mm-hmm. implies? And, in fact, it, it doesn't. Background light implies that there were more stars, galaxies, black holes, etc. And the resolution of that in the case, at least, of the radio, uh, of the um X-ray, and, and infrared, and visible light, was that the stars were being hidden, and the black holes were being hidden by dust; that the universe was choked with dust, a lot more dust than they ever thought, hmm. and that lurking within those clouds of dust were hidden populations of black holes, especially. So, if you re- if you try to go and take the same approach with the new background, the radio background that they they, they, they think they have now. You might look for another hidden population of something or other that could produce it, something that's not already accounted for in the catalogs, in the census. And one thing that came to people's minds is the very, 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 very first stars. These are the stars that just were the very first to form in the universe. There's a period of utter darkness, then stars started to take shape. And that very early generation, the kind of the Titan race of Titans of stars were larger. They different compositions. They died in, de- in a different way than the stars that
0: were in subsequent generations. Because so, those subsequent generations of stars are made up of the stuff that the first stars blew out when they exploded.
2: Right. Stars are made up of mostly hydrogen, which is primordial, comes from the Big Bang, or comes from the early universe. But mixed in to stars like the sun and its neighbors are traces of other materials like iron, oxygen, carbon, etc., we're made of those materials ourselves those materials are produced in stars, so the very early stars didn't have any of those other elements mixed in, they were just purely hydrogen and helium, so they behaved in it in a different way and in particular they were not cloaked in dust, and the new radio background signal seems also to be dust free, there doesn't seem to be any dust involved mm-hmm. in it, so people speculated and it is only a speculation, they really haven't worked it through yet that the radio background could be that very first generation of stars. The difficulty is that they really haven't worked through the, the calculations to prove that. It's just kind of one of those things people are kind of forced to do to insta-science and say, oh, maybe it's the first generation of stars, but something they'll have to kind of pin down
0: in the, in the, in the years to come. Right, because what we know for sure is that we can measure this radio wavelength Radiation. What we don't know is what it's doing out there. Right. And our attempts to figure out what it's doing will help us clarify what was going on billions of years ago. Right, exactly. So the thinking is that
2: it, like the other, most of the other background radiations is somehow an accumulation of pooled kind of curtain of light that comes from individual stars or maybe black holes, for example. And we just don't happen to see them because our telescopes don't have the resolving power.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: In principle, if we had a powerful enough telescope and could look far enough back, we would actually, the the curtain of light would dissolve and you'd get little pinpricks of light. Mm -hmm. That would be the individual stars making it up. A lot like our Milky Way galaxy. If you go out in a dark night, you see this curtain of light across the sky Mm -hmm. called the Milky Way. That's where the name comes from. But if you look through a telescope, as Galileo started to do, you begin to resolve that into individual stars, billions upon billions of stars. And the same trick might be repeated for the radio background as it was
0: for the other backgrounds. Very interesting. Speaking of Galileo, Mm -hmm. this is the 400th anniversary of...
2: His use of the telescope in astronomy. Now, the telescope, there's some dispute about when it was invented. Was it invented in Spain or in Holland? By whom? Maybe it was invented multiple times in 1608. But it really was in 1609 that Galileo took that thing and pointed it up at the sky and looked at the moon, looked at the at Jupiter, discovered the Galilean satellites of Jupiter—the four the main four satellites: Io, Europa, sea. Ganymede, and Callisto—interesting um, bodies to this very day. You can see them if you look through even binoculars. You can see them. Seen,
0: I have a pair of eight by fifty-six binoculars for astronomical use. Uh-huh. The fifty-six gives you that much more light gathering, and you can clearly see those four guys. I remember the first time I just looked up in New York City, where we have a lot of light pollution. I looked up at Jupiter and saw those Galilean moons, and, you know, no fancy instrumentation, just standing there with binocs. It's great.
2: Yep, and Galileo thought of that as kind of a prototype for our solar system. So it was one of the kinds of more visible pieces of evidence for the Copernican heliocentric, the the sun-centered view. Of the universe that was only then becoming accepted. And he also looked at Venus and saw something interesting. Saw the phases of Venus like the phases of the moon. So, um, this is now the International Year of Astronomy. It's kind of a big PR effort, an education effort, keyed to the anniversary of the astronomical use of the telescope by, by Galileo, but there's there's actually a podcast that's being put out uh, by a consortium of astronomers every day. There's a new uh, it's actually on iTunes now. You can, you can pick it up. There's a new podcast every single day for every day in the year. Mm. And they're scrambling to try to find ways to fill all those days. But, um, there's obviously a lot to talk about. There are museum exhibits. Um, and there's a big, at this meeting, I, I, I just went to, there was a kind of big opening gala for the International Year of Astronomy. There are documentaries
0: coming up on TV. So there's a whole lot of stuff. So everybody, don't forget to celebrate the International Year of Astronomy and the 400th. You're going to hear a lot about Darwin this year, the 200th anniversary of his birth and the 150th anniversary of Origin of Species. But it's also the 400th anniversary of Galileo finding the moons of Jupiter and the phases of Venus and all kinds of interesting stuff. So go out and look at the stars. And remember the the words of, I think it was Einstein who said, The universe is not only stranger than we imagine, it's stranger than we can imagine. Check out all of George's coverage from the AAS meeting at Siam.com. Just hit space in your list of subjects up top. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, women who eat lots of cereal while pregnant increase their chances of having sons. Story two, financial traders who make the most money were more likely to have a high ring finger length to index finger length ratio. Story three, Brits are making a point of eating more squirrels and story four, a blind man recently completed an obstacle course because visual information was getting through to part of his brain without his even being aware of it. Time's up. Story four is true. The blind man's feet was written up in the journal Current Biology. It's an example of what's called blind sight, where the visual cortex doesn't work, but the information still gets through. For more, check out the January 5th episode of the 60 Second Psych podcast. Story three is true. The gray squirrel is becoming a more popular dish in England... One reason is that the greys brought over from the States are an invading species there, and they're out-competing the popular native red squirrel. So one way to save the reds is to eat the greys. Excellent squirrel recipes can be found on episodes of the Beverly Hillbillies. And story two is true. In a study of 44 traders... The ones who made the most money over a 20-month period also had the highest ratio of the length of ring finger to index finger, The study was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It's known that the finger-length ratio is dependent on fetal exposure to testosterone, which also leads to testosterone sensitivity in adulthood. The researchers hypothesize that the finger-length ratio is thus a marker for behavior, such as decisiveness and risk-taking, which can help a trader make money in the short term. All of which means that story one about women who eat lots of cereal being more likely to have sons is totally... bogus. A study published last spring said it was true, but the Proceedings of the Royal Society B has just published a paper saying that the first paper was flawed. The Proceedings also published the original serial paper. For more, check out Jordan Light's January 14th blog item called Special Delivery Serial Not Linked to Baby Sex After All, study says. That's it for this edition of Scientific American Science Talk. Check out Siam.com for the latest science news and full articles from Scientific American Magazine and our other print edition, Scientific American Mind and Scientific American Earth 3.0. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.